hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook and I'm joined as always by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 per week. You can read all of our articles on Spurs and so much more, including all of our podcasts ad-free. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod. That's theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod and pay just £1 per week. One year into the Jose Mourinho era at Tottenham Hotspur, Charlie, on Saturday we got probably his best win of that time? Yeah, I think it was the best win. The 6-1, obviously, at United probably would be the next best. Um, but, but this just felt more controlled and um you know this felt like a the win of a team that's really going places i I think um the united win was maybe one step behind it that that felt a little bit like a bolt from the blue um this you know we we were talking about it on thursday we we all felt reasonably confident for this game um and it looked like they just had such a clear plan knew what they were doing um and yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get onto it, but you know, just comparing and contrasting it with that two 0 in February, which was, it did have the, you know, the feel of a smash and grab. It was a, a, a team that very much just got pummeled, but somehow nicked it when a man got sent off. This, this, I don't think was like that. Yes, City uh, had some chances and had a lot of territory and possession, but we kind of always knew they would do that, and it felt like Spurs were very happy for them to do that. So. Um, yeah, I think I think it is the best win uh, under Jose, and a really, really important one, and one that you know sets them up perfectly for this run of games that we've been talking about for so long. I think quite a few times over the last year, we've kind of jokingly talked about a game being a Mourinho masterclass, and I think that Man City game last season was it was definitely one of them. But this this actually was a Mourinho masterclass. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, genuinely. Yeah. Uh, you know, we know City had a lot of the ball, but actually, I think if you watch that game back, uh, and as I quite often say, I'd be interested to see the XG. Um, a bit because I don't feel like City had loads of really good chances. Like, h- how many like, proper saves did Lloris have to make? I don't think many. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think you're right what you say, Charlie. Like, that, that game last season was chaos, and there was no control there, and you know. They completely rode their luck to get that to get that win this time around. That that went according to plan. That was a planned thing, and they pulled it off perfectly. And I, you know, I, I know there'll be a few kind of sneering comments about that approach to a big Premier League match in the year twenty twenty. But no one in this league can defend, and if you're the only team in the league, or one of only a, a handful of teams in this league who can defend, and we know they're one of the best attacking teams, then I mean, what does that tell you? Where does that put you? It's got to put you in with a chance, right? But I also thought it was a really good point. Um, I saw this on Twitter. It's made by um, Dan Zakiri at the Telegraph. I think I mentioned before, and he said it. You know, he was like, when people talk about, oh, um, you know, do fans mind if the team wins in this way? And it's like fans know when a team has a plan and when they've been properly drilled and when this is a consequence of you know properly thought out preparation. They also know when they've been battered. And you know, I, I think last year most fans came away from. That game in February, yes, delighted that they'd won the game 2-0, but I don't think many were thinking like, yeah, this is a, a template we can repeat because you're not going to have teams missing penalties and missing open goals. Um, whereas this looked absolutely like a sustainable template. And like you say, James, there really there really aren't many teams who who look like they can defend or if they can defend, they're, they're pretty sterile going forward. 
I mean, D- Eric Dyer was talking about it. You know, they know as defenders that if they keep clean sheets, there's a really good chance they're going to win games because like it's so so hard uh, keeping this Tottenham attack out. And you know, you had Kane doing what he does and just dropping deep and um, creating chances. So th- this is something that I think you know they can and will do again. Um, possibly even as soon as Chelsea Chelsea on Sunday. Yeah, I think that comparison with the um, with the game in February is really, really valuable because, like you say, the game in February did owe a lot to chance. Like there was, you know, on another day, City would have won that game, quite obviously. I remember on the podcast last week, we were saying that Spurs are actually much more likely to get that kind of result this time than they were last time around uh, because they're better going forward and City aren't, aren't as good defensively without the ball or even with the ball. And that's exactly how it. That is exactly how it turned out. Like Spurs were much more solid and much more organised. And like you say, even though City did dominate possession, I did always think it was possession on Mourinho's terms. It was the kind of possession that Mourinho is really happy to let other teams have, where Spurs dig in and from, they were just letting City put the ball into the box and Dyer and Alderweireld were heading it away. Um, and of course, you know, even though Spurs scored two on the break, I actually think. Spurs could have scored more. Spurs had more good opportunities. And even when it was 1-0, you, you could kind of sense that all the next time Spurs got the ball, they would wind up scoring another goal and they could have they could have got even more. But when I was looking back on it, I thought the thing that it really reminded me of actually was Mourinho's inter-team in the way that they didn't really need that much possession to win the game. They were incredibly well organised. They had every. They had this amazing sense of buy-in, like of every single player on the pitch being fully committed to the plan. Like there were times when Harry Kane was out making tackles in what's effectively a left back or right back position for Spurs, which is actually the kind of thing that at times I remember in the, in the famous um, Inter Barca Champions League semi final second leg, Diego Melito would end up doing. And in another sense, the game that reminds me of was the 2010 Champions League final where Inter were happy to let Bayern have most of the ball because they knew they'd score their chances and they wound up winning 2-0. So even though that was kind of 10 years ago, I do think there's a kind of, you can see that resemblance between this Tottenham team, which now has that kind of Mourinho stamp and a great Mourinho team from 10 years ago who obviously went on to win the treble. It's quite interesting what you say about the Bayern there, actually, because that was one of the things that felt like had been lost kind of 18 months, two years ago under Pochettino, wasn't it? It felt like, you know, Pochettino had this plan, this way of playing, and it was incredibly intense. And over the course of, probably through the course of 2018 and into 2019, that that kind of fell away. And it felt like there was, maybe not like a reluctance, but like almost like a lack of energy or or desire to, to continue doing that. And it feels like this... This buy-in, as you put it, is like, is like an easier sell to players that are maybe thirty-one years old and uh, not not quite so able to hang around the pitch after the ball the whole game. For me, it evoked memories of that first Mourinho Chelsea team that won back-to-back Premier League t- titles, and and would often in these kind of games. I mean, I think of them playing against like Wenger's Arsenal. You'd um, you know you'd come away from it, and and Arsenal would have had a lot of pretty sterile domination, a lot of possession not a huge amount of chances and you kind of felt like Mourinho's Chelsea had them right where they wanted them and that's how it felt at times on um, on Saturday like I really I don't know certainly not I mean once the second went in obviously the game was, was done but even at 1-0 in that second the first half there was a period where City really on top but I, in the second half I didn't feel 
that worried for them. They they did feel in control, and and you mentioned as well, uh, Jack, about Dyer and Alderweireld just you know heading crosses away. It was so catastrophic for City and so good for Spurs that Spurs went ahead early. And meant they could sit deeper. You know, they were they were fine to do that. They didn't have to play. They didn't have to push particularly high. And that suits Dyer and Alderweireld down to the ground. They are really, really good at doing that. The challenge is going to come if and when, you know, they they come up against teams that can really stretch them and run in behind. Um, but yeah, it, it all just, it, it, it did seem to go pretty much precisely as the manager wanted. Do you think the reason Mourinho is so concerned over whether or not Sterling was going to play last week because was because he probably realised that Sterling was the one player in that Man City squad who, if he had played or if he had played more of the game, could have completely destroyed that tactical plan. Quite possibly, and I, and I do think that is the the kind of one outstanding question. You know, we we've seen Spurs have you know a, a switch has been flicked, and since West Ham they've conceded one goal in four games, and that one goal shouldn't have counted, uh, and they've done that with Dyrian Alderweireld. But they've done it largely by sitting deep, you know. And you think about opposition teams like Burnley and West Brom. Um, certainly, Burnley it was it was a question of winning headers, and and because they got the early goal against City, they could put it on those terms. So I I do think, obviously, we, we may not see it for a little while because Alderweireld is going to be out. But that's the um, that's the test, and that's the thing with winning a title. You you do just keep getting asked questions, and it's and it's the extent to which you can answer them that decides whether you will win it or well whether you'll run out of gas. We'll come on to the title stuff. Later, because I do think that is a really, really exciting. Um, you know, it's something. It is something worth talking about. I just want to dig into a little, dig a little bit deeper into a few more individual performances. I thought. I mean, to be honest, I thought everybody was brilliant yesterday. Oh, sorry, on Saturday rather. Um, one player that stood out to me, Charlie, was Ndombélé, who played a ridiculous scooped pass for Son's opener. It was the kind of moment that, because like the outcome of the game was so significant and. It's people get so wrapped up in like what does it all mean and everything that you sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the individual mm. details. But that song, but that Ndombele pass was incredible. It was so like there's not many players out there who would have the vision to to see that and then to execute it in that kind. He has quite an interesting and like rare way of striking the mm. ball. If you know what I mean, like he's, do you know what I mean? He looks like his kind of rawness and lack of conventional like academy education. I think shows shows up in his in his kind of quite creative and unorthodox style. Yeah, there was a moment as well in the first half which ended with Kane uh, being flagged for offside and tapping in oh, yeah, where, yeah, where yeah. received it and just sh- and just kind of dropped a shoulder and took out about three City uh, defenders or midfielders it probably was and then they moved the ball and, you know, from left to right and then back Aurier switched it over and, I mean, it was just a really lovely piece of play and, you know, to borrow that cliche about Messi, you know, if that was a Guardiola team we'd be going on about it. Well, I am going on about it. So, um, but yeah, and Dombele was was amazing and I think as well like the contrast because um, on one hand it was a repeat of um, February because he ca- he assisted uh, Son for a goal in that game too but you know that was at the period where all he could really do was cameos um, you know he was either starting and being hauled off after you know <laughs> often just at half time or uh, he was coming on and just showing it in flashes whereas now it's so much more consistent I think it's the last six Premier League games he started and I really liked as well that it, it was so obvious I said um, 
uh, to the guys around me at the game after about half an hour I was like and Dombele's clearly just been told look it's fine run yourself into the ground you, we've got Lo to come on you're not going to have to do much more than an hour and 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 having that depth which we've talked about before having that competition it meant and Dyer mentioned this as well after the game like it meant that Ndombele could do that. He didn't have to play at all within himself. He could just go full throttle. Uh, and they knew they could bring someone on in the Celso who's you know pretty much at that level. And obviously the Celso scored within 35 seconds. Just to go back to the first goal, it's not just about that ball, but it's also about the way he like shifts his body weight and turns like two or three defenders, yeah. like throws them completely off the scent straight away. And just lofts that ball so sort of nonchalantly over the top. And then doesn't even like break stride as he starts walking forward and the ball goes in the back of the net. He's just like... Uh, it's like it's a kind of completely run of the mill goal, or like you know the kind of the kind of ball he plays every single day. I, he just he's just so nonchalant about about everything. You just rarely <laughs> see like his expression change, for good or for bad, ever. And the role of Kane in that goal as well, the way he steps up, drags a couple of City defenders out of position, and opens up that space for Son to go in. And it's amazing, isn't it? We talked about after the Everton game on the opening day or the opening weekend of like the lack of an attacking plan. You know, things like that don't happen by accident. That looked very choreographed. Um, just a, yeah, an, an amazing, an amazing shift since then. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's talk a bit about Harry Kane. Um, on commentary on Sky, Gary Neville said he thinks it was the best he's seen Kane play since um, the 4-1 against Liverpool in November 2017. Watching at home on television, I thought Kane looked brilliant, largely... Uh, you just touched on this what for the way that he just destroyed Imeric Laporte with his movement like Laporte I mean I'm maybe I'm biased but I think Laporte's more or less the second best centre back in the Premier League behind Van Dijk and uh, Kane just took him to school on Saturday like dragging him around the pitch winning every physical challenge against him and Laporte is a really you know big imposing athlete it was just an incredible example of the kind of that movement into deeper areas and the problems that can cause for defenders and in doing so he kind of destroyed City's defensive shape and of course it was Kane as well who played that that clever little pass through to Lo Celso to set up the second goal again you know yet another example of just how how good Kane is in those kind of number 10 areas so Charlie how did it I mean how did it look up close and where does it rank amongst Kane performances this season? Well, this season, very, very highly. I mean, James will probably be able to recall every single one of Kane's performances since that 4-1 against Liverpool in, in my new detail. So, and, and, and indeed before. I mean, would you would you go along with that? Is that the... Uh, do you think it's the best since then? It's kind of hard to compare like Kane performances now to Kane performances from that sort of 2017, 2018-ish mm. era. Because he felt like then he felt... I mean, he was he's always more than just a goal scorer. But, but then it felt like... So much of his goal, so much of his game was about the goals, and I think he's always had that kind of playmaking thing in his locker. And I've, I've mentioned a couple of times this video of that Watford game, um, which still no one has sent me, and I still can't find. So please, Watford away. I can't think which season it would have been seventeen, eighteen, I guess, when Sanchez got sent off. Uh, there's a video of like a cane was peeing the ball around Vicarage Road all afternoon. Um, so he's he's always had that in his locker, but I think I think it's felt like way less prevalent in his game than in comparison to now. So I kind of find it quite hard to compare, like Kane as a kind of ruthless centre forward to Kane as a kind of all round. You know, I I think um, 
Gary Neville in commentary compared him to Zidane, didn't he? I think at mm. one point, which yeah. I think is a comparison that we'd actually made in this podcast before. Um, so maybe he listens. Um, <laughs> I think he credited us for it, actually, James. <laughs> Sorry, I missed you. I missed this when he compared Harry Kane to Zidane. Yeah, he was talking about the way the way he played. I think, and then he kind of backtracked a little bit by saying he was talking about like the like a playmaker with that physicality, which oh, yeah, which yeah. is actually pretty rare when you think about it. But Zidane was like what like I guess maybe six two. And, and like, strong, yeah. and like it's hard well. to get yeah, the ball. Exactly, yeah, really hard to get off the ball, like a bullish sort of number ten. Um, and I guess Figo is kind of a bit like that as well, actually. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think uh, you know, it, it's certainly one of his best performances. Let's put it that way. I mean, mm. I, I, like I say, I find it incredibly difficult to compare like him playing him playing in that peak Pochettino team to playing with this. But I think yeah. I think logically you'd have to suggest he's a better player now. I think so. Well, I think under Poch, like. And admittedly, you know, it was kind of, he was younger, he was fitter, he hadn't had any of these injuries. So under Poch, it's very much like running in behind, destroying the opposition with your movement, taking on centre-backs, like physical challenges against centre-backs, that kind of thing. And they didn't really, because Son was a little bit of a bit part player at that point, like sometimes Ali would be running on beyond him, but Kane was very much leading the line. And it's now, I mean, clearly Kane's job is very different. But I, I do think that like, the sum total of what Kane does now exceeds the sum total of what he did three years ago. Yeah. I mean, also, he's he's still like on course to get like kind of 35 goals, 40 he's gonna goals. He's going to get 30 anyway. goals, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but e- even, if he, even if he winds up like scoring 20 goals this year or 20 goals, you know, in, for the next few years, I think that the kind of, the stuff that he does that isn't goals will mean that his like aggregate output, I'm sure this can be measured somehow, his aggregate output is worth more to the team than it was before. And that is such an interesting comparison with Zidane. Like, I'd never... I, I must admit, I didn't hear Neville say that, but I can kind of see what he means, just in the sense that Zidane had that amazing capacity to, like... You know, I always, when they, and those, you know, people always post clips of, like, Zidane's best moments on on YouTube, on, on Twitter, and it's usually something like Bates like, smashing the ball up to him, and then Zidane just, like, takes it down and then has three or four defenders around him and then, like, spins out of it and muscles them off and then plays some brilliant through ball to Thierry Henry or whoever. And you can kind of see with Kane, Kane's ability to take the ball down and then you win the physical battle, like that first physical impact, and then turn his way into space and then play the through ball. It hadn't occurred to me before, but now you say that, I can, yeah, I kind of see what you mean. Yeah, I mean, defenders just bounce off him. Like, you can see it. They, they, they're, they're scared to go near him. And there was that one at the end where he got... Um, I think it was Diaz who got booked and it was just the culminate it, it, it just reflected how frazzled I thought the defenders looked they just they didn't know what to do with him Kane at that point had drifted to, uh, to over to the left wing I mean he was just roaming around all afternoon back when Van Persie went to United so when was that 2012, 2012 yeah. summer 2012 and then it went, he went to you know, obviously in the first season at United he was incredible and I just remember like going to see, I can't remember what, what game I was at, going to a game, watching Van Persie, I sat next to Sam Wallace, and Sam said to me something like, you know what it's like when when a player who's obviously like at the absolute top of his game and is the best player in the country just has that kind of natural aura and mm. charisma. And that is kind of how I now feel about watching Kane. I feel like Kane has that natural aura and authority and charisma that like marks him out as being A, on top of his own game, be probably the best player in the country. Like, I've got no idea whether Spurs are going to win the title or not this year. We can come to that later. But I think Kane will probably wind up winning the player of the year trophies if he keeps playing like he is at the moment. I feel like this is 
you know, for reasons we've just gone into a minute ago, like probably the best Kane that we've seen. And uh, I just feel like, yeah, you kind of can't take your eyes off him at the moment, can you? He, he to me, looks like just the best kid in the playground. He's just sort of swaggering around the place. He, he knows he's far better than everyone. Uh, you know, getting on the ball, moving it, then just like it looks like he's kind of gliding then into the next position to receive the ball again. I mean, I think he's got 16 goals and assists um, combined already this season. It's just miles clear of anyone else. Like he, he is genuinely on another level. And it's just quite an interesting corrective just because there were so many, you know, even as recently as one year ago, for example, you were so many like Kane is finished takes out there. Well, on this podcast about uh, six months ago, you were both saying it. Not me. I was always I was always pro L- listeners. Listen back, find the clips, and send them to us. Yeah, can't wait, <laughs> no, but they do exist. I definitely said that like he wasn't playing as good as he was before. I don't think I said he was like rubbish, which some people did, or finished, which some people did. You know, there's a lot of people out there in the t- in the football Twitter take verse who uh, would say quite willingly that they thought Kane was now like useless mid table player. Uh, he's been completely ruined by injuries and stuff. But in fact, he's uh, you know it's a, it's a warning not to go overboard with the kind of knee jerk takes. <laughs> I'm sure that will stop so, us going forward. He's so incredible. <laughs> I, I don't want to like throw someone under the bus, so I won't name them. But there was someone uh, in the kind of analytics community who suggested that Kane, having looked at his numbers, I think for eighteen nineteen, uh, suggested that Kane was like now, now basically a kind of average striker who was kind of on a par with Danny Ings and Andre Gray. Uh, now, Ouch. subsequent to that, obviously Danny Ings has ended up like exploding in Southampton, so that's like doesn't feel as much of a dick. But Andre Gray, with respect, now playing uh, Well, we um, on the analytics, we Tom Werville and I did look at it, and you know it wasn't a Kane's finished take, but it was looking at those numbers and see, seeing how they changed. Um, and it is interesting because now he has. I mean, he's it, where he's playing is very different, but the numbers are back to those. Not not quite the goal scoring or the shooting. I mean, the shooting volume for a while was was ridiculous, but the the goals and assists output is is back to being ludicrous again. I mean, it does all beg the question, doesn't it? Whether this kind of stage of his evolution would have happened under Pochettino, or what, like whether it would have happened regardless of who the manager was, or whether Mourinho has said something or done something that has enabled him uh, to like to be that much more free in the way he plays, so not feel like he always has to be the point man, to feel like he can drop off. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I think our perception, we talked about it before, uh, was that Mourinho wouldn't really do a lot to enable the attacking players. He'd basically just let them do their own thing. So you just wonder whether or not that is the case and whether Kane is kind of taking mm. it upon himself to, to develop his game in this way, whether Mourinho has actually actively kind of encouraged him and advised him. Also on that counterfactual, if he hadn't had these injuries, I want, I mean, I, I wonder how much, even if it is, by an infinitesimal amount, but that ma- that makes quite a big difference at that level. Like, has he been slightly slowed down, and that's why he's no longer kind of charging in behind opposition defenders? Whether that's a choice or uh, he's slightly been forced to do that, and that's that's made him adapt his game in this way. Well, like whether he, I guess what I'm saying, you know, would he, if he w- if he were still the exact same speed and and all of that that he had when he was 23, whether he would still be playing like that or whether he he would have adapted in this way. Players have to change as they get older, and sometimes it you know it might well be. You often get number nines who have injuries and can't really adapt. Like Michael Owen, for example, is a good example. Yeah, so I was thinking. The bad hamstring injuries couldn't really adapt. Fernando Torres lost his pace, couldn't really adapt. Wayne Rooney, I think, did adapt pretty well in lots of different ways over the course of his career. Well, Shearer's the one, strong. isn't he? Alan Shearer. I mean, Shearer's he adapted. Really bad injuries and like, completely, completely yeah. changed So game. I think it's not... Yeah, so there's, it's, it is interesting to see which, which strikers can survive, you know, 
injuries, loss of pace, that sort of thing, and which can't. To be fair to Owen, I mean, Owen did win a Ballon d'Or after he lost his pace. I mean, he he adapted. He lost his pace so early. He was never explosive, and then he did have to. He adapt. was still pretty quick, though, right? When he, he was won quick, a Ballon d'Or. But, but he wasn't. I mean, what his hamstring went not ninety eight quick. Yeah, ninety nine, wasn't it? Yeah, it was ninety nine. It was against in in yeah. April ninety nine that his Hammy went. He was never yeah. he was never just like roadrunner fast after that he was you know he was still sharp but he wasn't quite the same player but weirdly didn't do that much really at all in his career after winning that Ballon d'Or at least in club football probably never had another like big like bumper goal season yeah but um something that somebody speculated about Kane the other day which I think might be true is as well as the change of manager which happened obviously last November the combination of the hamstring surgery in January plus the Covid break started in March meant that he basically had, what, six months without playing between the Southampton game on New Year's Day... Not far off, yeah. ...and the the return against Man United on June the 19th. That's yeah. six months. Almost. Yeah, pretty much six months. Six, almost six months. That's like the longest break he would have ever had in his career after playing non-stop, for the, ankle injuries aside, for the last kind of six years. And it might well be that, you know, that gave him the break that he needed because we all know that he he, you know, he has basically been running to the ground over the last few years, played every single game twice a week, plus all the England games. I'd be interested to know, like, the ins and outs of this, like, medically, but I do feel like he has returned kind of fresher and sharper than he was in the past. He looks like he's got there now. I mean, if you think back to that United game, that first game back after the lockdown, and there were concerns because, you know, he didn't look to be moving all that freely. And it's interesting because back then, you know, he, he played similarly deep that day. And, you know, I think he took more touches in his own box than in the United box. And the fear, you know, it was kind of what's happening to Kane. Um, obviously, now we've seen that that's part of his evolution. But, yeah, I mean, he, he certainly now looks sharper. I guess, and I don't know, James, how you feel about this is the kind of worry that he will get run into the ground again. And that because Mourinho's made it pretty clear, he's not really going to rest him all that much. Um, and just, you know, how you think he should be handled. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so much of what's happened subsequent to that Antwerp game has kind of shone a light on why Mourinho was so pissed off about that dreadful performance from what I guess we call the second string. Because now they're in a situation where they probably need to play a relatively strong team, certainly against Ludogorets, because they want to make sure they win this game, like put Ludogorets, put them to bed, they'll be out there, won't they? But they're going to have to play a strong team again in one of the other two games just to make sure they get across the line. I doubt they'll be too fussed whether they come first or second. I know you're increasing your chance of playing a Champions League dropout team if you finish second, but what can you do? So, yeah, you do worry that you might ultimately find yourself with the same problem. Um, and at some point, he is going to need to be left out of some games. I guess I guess the hope has to be Vinicius can uh, get a goal maybe on Thursday night and then that maybe makes the whole thing feel quite different. Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, that would certainly be a worry. I mean, now, now he's playing in this new role, he feels so integral to the team, possibly even more than he did before. It is definitely something that they need to keep an eye on. Well, in the past, like, um, well, certainly, like, let's say the 2018-19 season, when admittedly Kane wasn't at his best, they did play really well quite a lot of the time without Kane. And, you know, with Son plays as a number nine instead of Kane, and that's why, you know, there was a debate about whether or not Kane should come back into the Champions League final, and that's why I think, frankly, I think a lot of the players thought that Kane shouldn't come back in for the final. Whereas nowadays, it would be kind of insane to say that Kane shouldn't play. It was quite insane then, let's be upfront about that. What, insane to say that Kane shouldn't <laughs> yeah. play the final? You shouldn't play your best player because some other bloke who turns up one in every 10 games scored a hat-trick in a, in a game where oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Statistically speaking, he wasn't going to turn up. 
It's obvious. That's well, yeah. I'm not like I'm not. I don't come on this podcast to defend Lucas Moura, <laughs> but uh, and his like starting the Champions League final. But yeah, you, you know what I mean. Like I do. I think you are. I think you are right. I think Kane is more. Kane is more important to the team now than he was in the past. Yeah, even if it's not about Mora, there was definitely a school of thought that um, you know Son Sonny was certainly uh, a very good replacement, and sometimes Spurs looked more fluid uh, when he played up front rather than Kane. Again, I'm not saying Kane shouldn't have played. It's not about the Champions League final, but that was definitely a school of thought at the time. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So, almost one quarter of the way through the Premier League season... Tottenham are tied on points at the top of the league with Liverpool. They are miles ahead of them on goal difference because Spurs only conceded nine goals and Liverpool have conceded 16, both teams having scored 21 goals. So, James, Spurs are in top, they're in pole position. Can they win the league? No comment. Wow. You're not going to get me talking about that this early. I told you the other week, you can't talk about the title race. You can't talk about the title race in, in November, effectively October. You can't talk about that till February or March, maybe April or May. Oh, you can. People do all the time. I know they do. I know people do, but I don't. Uh, I mean, look, uh, just do, to reiterate what I said before, as things stand, they have the best defensive record in the league and they're one of the best teams going forward. I think second only to Chelsea in terms of a number of goals scored. So I would say it's a favourable combination of factors. Uh, but I... I maintain my concerns about those games against teams who uh, will kind of sit eight players behind the ball which I think will become more of a thing as we get into like that busy Christmas period and also their second half of the season when teams have got like a sort of tangible goal in sight in terms of like points and whatever so they look very good at the moment and I'm very happy but uh, there's a long way to go and uh, other diplomatic cliches Charlie, give me something to believe in. <laughs> God, it is like having a, a Premier League manager uh, on the call. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think everything James says is obvious, is you know, eminently sensible. You, no one's going to be coming out now and saying, "Yeah, they're absolutely they're going to win the title." Especially, you know, there have been years gone by, um, like when Leicester won the league in 2016, where there was kind of a confluence of all the teams that would normally win it were for whatever reason not very good that year um whereas at the moment yeah you you could say that of city maybe they're in that kind of um transitionary moment but liverpool still look really really good and yesterday was a little sobering in that respect because i think um you know given, given the injuries they had maybe we were thinking maybe they'll drop off and, and and maybe there's a hope as well that this season given they won the league last season the Champions League the year before um, their intensity might drop just a bit but you know they're, they're no mugs so I think you know to be saying after nine games that um, yeah we're, Spurs are going to win the title is would be going overboard but they are they're absolutely in it I mean they're in the mix at this point it would be I think churlish and overly pessimistic to say otherwise Um 
but yeah, we'll see. You know, we'll see after after Chelsea, after Liverpool. Um, but also, yeah, enjoy it now because th- there's no point being too uh, too sensible about it because this is this is the fun. Don't part. tell me how to live my life. What I'll, what I'll say is, if they don't win the league this season, they would have bottled it more now than they did in 2016 when everyone says they bottled it, even though they were never top of the league. Okay, I'll, gi- mm-hmm. I'll give you that much. They would have bottled it more now than they did in 2016. But how can you say that now? I mean, what if they? throw away a 15 point lead or something that's what I'm saying whatever happens now they've been top of the league this season they weren't top of the league in 2015-16 oh I see so they've right. bottled it more whatever happens if they don't win the league now they have bottled it more this season than that season that's a fact oh right I see, I see, I see where you're going I disagree with that I think that in actually I don't know they barely dropped any points towards the end of that season until it was basically done yeah actually no I don't disagree with you but what I would say about that season Spurs that season were predicted I mean probably similar to this season probably by most people predicted to finish like sixth. And they ended up finishing third, and they should have finished second. Well, they bottled finishing second. That's you criticise them for that, but don't criticise them for not winning the league that season. I mean, that's that's absolute bollocks. But that's like um, Liverpool in the league in that Rogers season. From the start of February, when they were in about fifth, to win the league, I think they needed to win like thirteen out of their last fifteen games. And what they did was win twelve out of their last fifteen games. Or, or, you know, so, uh, around those numbers. I mean, they still went on an absolutely ludicrous run and they had a def- they had like a pub defence that was... They should never have been winning the league that season. But it is, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's how it plays out, isn't it? I know they did go top, but they that you could say they overachieved that season as well. Well, they probably did, but they were also top. And they basically had it in their hands completely, didn't they? I mean, yeah. Uh, we, we talked about that team a few weeks ago. We compared that team to this Spurs team. And since we did that, Spurs have defended far less like Martin Skirtle. I think Spurs is not, this Spurs team is not really that analogous to that Liverpool team. Just because they, they've got a manager who's won like a million major trophies. Well, that is the thing. I was thinking about that, like the difference between when you're talking about kind of challenger teams, you don't normally associate, it, it's quite unusual to have a a team that hasn't won anything for, that hasn't won the title for a long time with a manager who's won it, you know, he's 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 won it three times and exactly, you know, yeah. only... Ferguson's won it more like that is quite an unusual situation so that does um, make you think that maybe this will be different um, from yeah the, the Liverpool 2014 or the Poch Spurs team that came so close that might be a good theory actually that to to win the team as an outsider you need a, an experienced winning manager like I don't know uh, Van Gaal at AZ Alkmaar or mm. Ma- Man- Mancini at City did Ranieri win a title before Leicester no, that's a good point. He hadn't he hadn't no. won anything. I don't think he'd won a trophy in his career. So, but they're an anomaly. They were five thousand to one. Yeah. yeah, I think that is one of my big takes on football, which gets shouted down. Is like Leicester was like such a weird freak and like random occurrence that we actually shouldn't care about it that much. You know what I mean? Like it's not as amazing as people say it is, just because it was so it was so <laughs> random and weird. You know what I mean? It's like a million to one. Hello. I'm Ian McIntosh, and despite literally spending months of my life playing football manager, I'm still terrible at it. That's why I'm launching The Football Manager Show, the latest podcast from The Athletic. Every week, I'll speak to the people who know the game best, the people who make the game. We'll take a proper look at things like training, recruitment and tactics. We'll try to answer your questions. We'll do everything we can to keep you eager to play just one more game and altogether less inclined to quit without saving. The era of Cherno and Tonton and dear sweet Michael Duff is over. The new football manager is bigger, better, more challenging than ever. And I need some help. If you do too, you can subscribe now. 
just look for the Football Manager Show by The Athletic, wherever you get all your other podcasts. It starts in November, and knowing my track record, I'll be unemployed by December. We should look forward to Spurs' next few games, because they are really, well, Thursday isn't a huge game, but... Uh, the Sunday game certainly is. Uh, Ludogorets. I don't know how much we, we learned about Ludogorets in the first game or if we want to talk about Ludogorets that much. But what sort of a Spurs team, Charlie, are we expecting to see on Thursday? And will it include all the best players who played against Manchester City? Yeah, this is another... I was, I was really interested on Sunday morning. I put this out there on Twitter, kind of what team would you select? Uh, and the overwhelming response from... Um, the, the people who responded who are, I imagine, you know, 99% of those are Tottenham supporters was they want wholesale changes up to 11 and, you know, all roads lead to Stamford Bridge and that's what the focus should be on. Um, and I definitely do sympathise with that view. Um, I, I do think if you do make that number of changes, you have to make peace with the fact that even if the players you're bringing in are of the quality of Gareth Bale and whoever... It's very, very hard to be fluent when you make that change, that number of changes. So if, if you if you want that, you then have to accept it. Might it's not going to be the prettiest. It could be a bit of a grind, um, you know. Obviously, and we talked about the fact that that loss in Antwerp means this group isn't a formality. So you know, do you need to show your opponents a bit more respect? Do you keep a few of the key players? I mean, I, I don't think Mourinho is going to make like 11 changes after Antwerp, whether people think he should or not. And then it's just a question of how many you keep in and who you keep in. You know, they'll have a better idea of who's, um, you know, looking a bit leggy and that sort of thing. Um, but it is a tough, it's a tough balance. And also you don't want to lose momentum. Uh, but I, but I do, I do think the priority has to be Sunday. And, and given the depth of their squad, they should be good enough, should be more than good enough to beat Ludogorets, even if they are making, uh, you know, a pretty high number of changes. So in practice, you'd expect to see what Davinson Sanchez come in, Ben Davis, yeah. um, Joe Hart maybe, Lascelles, yeah, I think Winks, Delhi potentially, Mora, Bale, Vinicius. I mean, that's naming like. Everyone who could come in, but they they will all be in the mix. Lamella, if he's fit, Tanganga, if he's fit. As ever with Spurs, they can change the whole team, and the team they're left with is still pretty good. Like their second eleven is really good compared to lots of the other teams they're competing with, who might have like say sixteen frontline players, but not a whole twenty-two. But yeah, you're right. They they do have to fight. They have to make as many changes as they can and still win the game because it's not really a game they don't want to be winning. They've lost that margin forever, haven't they? After that loss in uh, in Holland. James, who do you want to see? I mean, I would definitely like to see Vinicius play at uh, centre-forward. I mean, I think that's a given. Yeah, I think we've said a couple of times that this competition feels incredibly Lucas Moura. And it does just, it does feel like... You know, it's his perfect level. If he starts on Thursday night, he will definitely score. He just definitely will. Um, so you definitely want to see him play. Uh, I mean, I guess what you have to do is kind of work out who you want to play against Chelsea and then kind of reverse-engineer it from that, right? So... If, he, if he's leaving Bergwijn in, you'd probably say you don't want him to play. Because he, uh, you know, looks a little leggy. Um, you kind of want to avoid playing Kane and Son completely, don't you, if you can. And I think they should be able to do that. I mean, if Lamella's back, that's great, because that kind of goes some way to solving that problem, I guess. Um, but yeah, Winks. Uh, I, I can kind of see that maybe he'd still play Hoiberg, just because he has... It feels like he's kind of got the... 
mentality that will kind of pull him through that game on Thursday night or at least an hour of it uh, and then have him kind of ready for Sunday so I, could, I wouldn't be entirely surprised if he played and then yeah you're, you're right you know D- Davis comes in at left back Sanchez will obviously play I guess Dai would probably play again purely because of that blood of options assuming Tanganga's not back and then again Aurea will have to play again and presumably Doherty will come in on Sunday I guess assuming he's back from I guess they'll have to give a, a negative test result right yeah, or if Tanganga is back, he could play right back and you give Aurier the night off. I, it's also a benefit there of five subs because that does open up the scope to do kind of like what, Chelsea, uh, what Spurs did in the in the first game, that they could make some quite early changes. Yeah, because that does give you the opportunity if you do start, if, like, if you start strong, go two or three nil up in the first half and then you can take like two or three plays off at halftime basically without any worry. And then Chelsea on Sunday is a huge game because it's... Um... Well, it's first against third in the league. And also Mourinho has managed to lose both of his Premier League games to Frank Lampard's Chelsea since becoming Tottenham manager. Although, of course, Spurs did win in the EFL Cup in September. Charlie, is this going to be the game where Mourinho can uh, turn over his Lampard hoodoo? Or are we expecting more of the same? I mean, it's definitely just of those two games. I mean, this, the first one... Um... You know the, the one at uh, at Spurs. Chelsea played really well and, and deserved to win that game two 0 The second was when Spurs were without Kane and Son, and it was you know that really dark time, kind of February March. Um, so I think it'll be very very different from that. Yeah, they've they've got um you know <laughs> like when we talk about the title, yeah, it's it's hard to say it's hard to bet against them at the moment because they are playing so well. Um, you know, in Chelsea. They have looked good at times, but I do think there are vulnerabilities there that Spurs could exploit. And I think they've got um, a manager who will, you know, who will identify those errors and they've got the players to take to take advantage of that and to exploit them. So, yeah, I, I really, I don't know how to call that game. Maybe a draw because a draw is a kind of okay result for both teams. Um, and sometimes that's how those big games play out. But... Um, yeah, I certainly wouldn't feel confident betting against Tottenham, put it that way. I think, I mean, I think the two teams, and I think we did say this the other week, but they're, they're in quite a similar position, aren't they? Really, it feels like they've both got like a wealth of attacking options. Um, question marks over both defensively. I guess the two differences are one: we categorically know that Spurs' attack works, and there's some fluidity there, and it all kind of clicks. And two, Spurs have. Like a massively experienced manager, and at Chelsea, obviously, have a guy who's completely new to the or in managerial terms, only just over a year into to working in the Premier League. So that, I guess that's the difference. That in a game like this, you want to have the experienced manager rather than the the rookie, for want of a better phrase. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of agree with Charlie. I, I, it does strike me as a kind of game that they'll both be desperate to not lose. Um, I mean, I'm sure obviously they would both love to win, but it might be one of those ones where they kind of put the handbrake on a little bit. And just kind of trying to exchange blows on the counter attack and kind of see if they can kind of cut each other out. But I wouldn't expect it to be like another sort of, you know, I, 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 I could be amazed if there are more than three goals in the game. Yeah, I think if it's like a bit like City Liverpool, if it gets to one all after about an hour, I kind of, I, I don't know how, how much either side would be going hell for leather to win it. I've had my fingers burnt in the past predicting that Spurs would beat Lampard's Chelsea. So you've got to keep doing it. I don't Just know. keep going. Like, You'll get like, it right eventually. It's like betting on red every time. Like eventually. Yeah. Do you slightly have reservations about um, 
Timo Werner and Ziyech, who are both playing really, really well up against Dio and Alderweireld, who are obviously like really good in their own way, those two. Well, if Alderweireld plays, that, we don't know, do we? Oh, yeah, of Which course. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah. he's, if he's going to be injured, then it would be what Dyer and Sanchez. Um, I think or like, Roden. Yeah, I think like the one the one bit of the Spurs team that I have reservations about is the centre backs, basically. And even though, you know, they did really well against City, you know, it's, it was a sort of misfiring City without Aguero and with De Bruyne not really on top form um, and with no Sterling. So it's not really like classic City. Uh, and in that sense, I'm just kind of wonder how the Spurs back line will cope with a Chelsea back line that has I mean sorry a Chelsea front line that has so much talent in there like Chelsea the amount of talent that Chelsea can put on the pitch is ridiculous like they have so many brilliant brilliant players and you know it remains to be seen how well Frank Lampard will gel them into a team over the course of this season so as much as I as much as I'd like to often I go into these games thinking oh yeah of course Tottenham will definitely win because of Mourinho and all that and I have been very bullish on the past in the past about this fixture. I'm kind of a bit worried about Spurs just because even if it is Dyer and Sanchez, Dyer and Roden up against Werner, I don't know. Am I am I overcompensating guys, or do you think do you think there is a real worry there? And this Chelsea team are like a totally different proposition to that City team that Spurs played on Saturday. Yeah, uh, and I think it requires quite a different type of defending, and ah. Uh, if you went back in time three weeks, you would pro- or four weeks maybe, you would probably say you would rather Sanchez played in this game than one or other of Alderweireld and Dyer purely because, you know, as we said back in that stage of the season, he's the one who gives you the pace that otherwise they haven't got in the centre of defence. So, I, I don't know, maybe it works out but they kind of stumble into like a little bit of good fortune there and that actually they're slightly better suited to play- facing Chelsea with Sanchez than they would have been of Alderweireld. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced that would be what I would choose on the basis of what we've seen in the last few weeks, but perhaps it is kind of a possibility that that might uh, fall in their favour. Excellent. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's View from the Lane podcast. Um, thanks, as ever, to producer Tom, to James and Charlie, and to everyone who has tweeted us and sent us messages over the last week or so. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Anything you want us to talk about next week, Please just let us know. We will be looking back on the Ludogratz game and the Chelsea game and looking forward to Spurs' next fixtures. Uh, I just haven't... I don't know anything. anything (laughs) North London Derby. Against LASK Linz and then the North London Derby uh, the following week. Seamless.